It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This is Free Exchange from CapEx. I'm Robert Colville, CapEx's editor. For Philip Gould, Andrew Cooper is the best political pollster of his generation. For Jim Messina, he's the worst pollster I have ever worked with. For Douglas Alexander, he's the man who saved the union. But for Fraser Nelson, he's the man who doomed it. Lord Cooper of Windrush, our guest today on Free Exchange, has been at the heart of some of the biggest campaigns in British politics – on both the winning and the losing side. The co-founder of Populous, he was director of strategy to David Cameron, pollster for the Better Together campaign in Scotland, and for the Remain campaign in the EU referendum. As Britain prepares to go to the polls, we talk to him about the art of polling, the art of campaigning, and what on earth is happening to British politics. So I mentioned that you've been one of the first Tory modernisers. In fact, there's an argument that you were the first Tory moderniser. Um, as early as 1988, you presented William Hague with research arguing that the Tory party needed to be detoxified, overhauled, modernised, and basically make its peace with the 20th, 20th or 21st centuries. In, in fact, I think you were the first to use the, the phrase the nasty party. I, I don't know if that's true. I know I, there are people who tell me that that is the case. I don't. I don't particularly claim ownership of that phrase, but but that phrase was certainly um, within the, in the spirit of the analysis that we had. And the challenge, I think, at that point, in, in after that extraordinary evisceration in 1997, was to try to make the party look at itself from the outside in, and to to see the Conservative Party through the eyes of the voters and the people who who confidently and happily voted Conservative in the past but suddenly felt that the party was no longer for them. And that phrase, which of course Theresa May then famously used, um, did capture a lot of what what people did think about the party. But is there an argument that you're effectively the last moderniser as well? That the, that the analysis you had then about how politics works seems to have been, over, been overhauled or replaced by a new paradigm post-Brexit? Well, I mean, at, at its simplest, I think that um, the, the sort of the, the modernising thought is that parties need to be they need, they need to fit the times. You know, they, they need to understand and respect the the state of the country as it is now and respond to today's challenges. And the fact is that that the Brexit vote has changed the political landscape, at least in the short term. 
um, and has sort of rotated the axis of politics in a way that the, the dynamics are different and the, and the coalitions within parties and between parties are different. So it, it's definitely a different challenge. And I think, you know, the, the, how does the Conservative Party remain contemporary and current and modern and in touch with Britain today um, remains the challenge. But the, the answers to that will be very different, perhaps, than they were when we were looking at the question 20 years ago, after all, um, after 1997. And I mean, looking at the election campaign, which is still going on, we're recording a couple of weeks in advance, but um, looking at the election campaign so far, do you think the Conservatives have got the answers broadly right? I think that... Um, I think, I think so, I mean, strength and stability is clearly a very, a very important part of what, what the country wants at this point, and I think it's right to emphasise that. Um, personally, I think that they, they should, a campaign should have, had the, should have the confidence in the strength of the party's position to um, manage down expectations a bit, because I think, I think we're going to find in a year or two... Um, there's a sort of rec- reckoning that the country may not be ready for, and I think is that Brexit related? Um, I think it's Brexit related. I think, I think that there, there's just a, a lot of big challenges in this country. I mean, it, it's Brexit related. Clearly, we don't know how it's going to shake down. And, and I think at the moment, voter expectations, even people who people who voted enthusiastically to leave uh, and people who voted to, to remain, I think expectations are, are probably unrealistically high about how well the negotiations will go and how and, and how painless this may be but but we'll also other, there are other huge challenges obviously we've got huge challenges in our education system there are massive problems with the nhs the, d- the deficit still there the deficit is absolutely still there so there still isn't any money as it were um it's you know it's a difficult landscape to to, to, to navigate and i think that the fact that the, that the conservative party is deservedly going to win a, a, a massive majority gives the opportunity actually to be a bit more direct with the country and I think to take the opportunity not to give hostages to fortune on issues like tax and spending and and in my personal opinion immigration policy too. You you gave a talk recently where you said that um, I think something like 60% of voters thought about the EU they need them they need us more than we need them and presumably that's a sort of parcel of the whole. Yeah I mean it was it was in my view that was a critical part of the of the EU referendum debate because it's enabled people to feel that whatever people said now, which was all about how they wanted to vote in the referendum, the fact that the EU needs us more than we need the EU meant that in the final analysis they'd have to give us a good deal. And I think an awful, and right through the referendum campaign for you know, what the period of a year and a half up to June 23rd last year, those numbers barely wavered at, at, at more than 60%. And I think an awful lot of people still feel that. You know, the the... the, the Anecdotal argument about the the you know the boss of BMW going into Angela Merkel and saying I don't you know I don't care about your you know, EU level politics but BMW needs a deal with, with Britain and she'll have to give them one I, just, I, I don't think it's going to be as simple and straightforward as that but um, but a lot of voters feel you know if you do focus groups now on this issue um, a lot of people are quite bored with the whole subject it's dominated politics for ages and as we know most people aren't interested in politics really and. A lot of people puzzle why we haven't left already because it was ages ago and what's going on. There's a vague awareness of a thing called Article 50, but most people don't you know what, what it is or how that works. And there is still that sense that um, in the final analysis we'll get a good deal because they need us more than we need them. And also a feeling that because Project Fear, as everybody called it, had said that the sky would come crashing down if we voted to leave, and it hasn't, that's made people feel, I think, probably um, unduly confident that it's all going to be fine. 
I, I remember a friend of mine saying to me that the greatest cure for sort of Westminsteritis is spending an hour in a focus group and seeing just how how little of all the yeah. things that you we we talk about around here yeah. gets absorbed. That's absolutely right. I mean, I've, I've often sat in. I used to when when I worked for for David and, and before back in the day when I worked for William Hague, I used to try to get politicians to come and watch focus groups because it's very good for for their sense of reality they're incredibly dispiriting if you're the minister who spent weeks going around the tv studios talking about a particular policy and you then go to focus group and find that not only has no one ever heard of the policy they've never even heard of you um it, when i worked in number 10 for david cameron i had on the wall next to my desk a quote from tony blair's um, um memoir in which and i paraphrased slightly but he said the biggest mistake that politicians make is massively to overestimate how interested people are in politics um, and the, the, he said that's a fatal error in lots of politicians. And he said the reason why it matters is because it causes politicians too often to focus on the small picture when they should be focusing on the big picture. I think that's that's an absolute truth in, in politics. And you know, most people, um, most ordinary voters, are busy getting on with their lives, and, and they find politics boring and confusing, and filter out as much of it as they can. But when they do take notice, they kind of the economy are quite a sort of sharp. Um, moment for Westminster. Yes, and I mean, you know, one of the things about election campaigns is that there is a period where even people who, who, are, who are titanically uninterested in politics feel this is the moment I have to engage and get a sense. So you can, you can sort of set and reset people's impressions of parties and their priorities and their leaders and their values at election times. But one of the things you've said is that you need to do that throughout. It's, it's no good, say, Jeremy Corbyn just coming out now and saying, I actually, we're going to close the deficit. We believe yeah. in fiscal responsibility. Yeah, and precisely because people tune politics out so much it's vital that the bits and pieces that get through which is you know in peacetime between elections is often in the form of the you know the 40 second soundbite on the on the six o'clock news but it's little little nuggets of it's like sort of pixels forming a picture and, and each little pixel has to add up to a coherent picture otherwise it's just fuzz i was, I was once told that with ed miliband it, with david cameron it was something like it was like you know hugs hugs hoodies hugs huskies uh, posh uh, with Ed Miliband, it was weird bacon sandwich stamped his brother. Yeah, and the people you know, you start from a base where most people have never heard of almost any politician, and over time, as they get exposed to them, people end up knowing two or three things, and that, that's it. That's their capacity. Um, you know, William Hague struggled right from the beginning because because most people already knew that he'd given a speech to the Tory conference when he was 16, which marked him out straight away as extremely atypical and weird, and then we added to that almost immediately. Um, a baseball cap and, and then, then finally it was capped off with the claim that he drank 12 pints of beer and there wasn't room for anything else really um, yeah, I, mean, so, I mean one of the more interesting things I, I read in the biographies when I was researching this is that you actually polled on whether the idea of David Cameron as a chillaxer was, was cutting through because everyone was everyone seems to be that was the reputation he was getting in Westminster so yeah, I think it's it's natural and right that party leaders, uh, you know, and good good politicians want want to know the kind of unvarnished truth of what voters think of them, and and that then feeds into a communication strategy. And, and at that period, there was a lot of a lot of sort of insinuation in the press and, and and attacks on Cameron for being for chillaxing too much. Um, and he he wanted to know whether that was cutting through and was that becoming a problem in sort of sapping at his authority as prime minister. So. In the Tory war room at the moment, what sort of things will they be doing on a sort of day to, on a sort of rolling basis and, and day to day? In terms of the research, you mean? Yeah. Well, I mean, they'll, they'll, I don't know, um, but I would imagine they'll be doing a lot of um, tracking polling in in sets of specific individual seats um, to to test where they are in terms of the 
um, the level in the battleground and how, how messages are landing. Um, they will be doing research to test the impact of different communications. Um, you know, there are always there are lots of different ways of making the same argument. I think we all learned a huge amount from the Barack Obama's 2012 campaign, which was a big sort of step change in, in campaigning, um, and the, the use of social media and um, the really sort of rigorous multi-level testing of different arguments. In the, the Obama 2012 campaign, um, they tested everything sort of 20 times, 20 different versions of a, of a particular piece of communication, and what they discovered was that the, the managers of the campaign and the politicians never once correctly guessed which would be the most effective. But of course the new thing now is that you're not just testing 20 messages against the population, you're testing 20 messages or 200 messages against individual segments of the population. Correct. It's the, the, I mean, the, the use of sophisticated data analysis to put voters into buckets, as it were, um, so that you can hone your message, and even, even to get to the level of doing that on a, on a, on a probabilistic predictive basis, where you're able to say, um, we know enough about you that we can say with a fairly high degree of confidence that we think the issues you're concerned about are ABC, not DEF, and that you prefer to be prepared to be communicated in this particular way, and therefore to tailor both the message and, and the mode of communication. And it's not perfectly accurate, but it's much more accurate than going in cold and simply applying the same message to absolutely everybody, which is obviously what you had to do when you didn't have, have channels by which to target people. And of course, there's an argument that this is not very good for politics in the kind of broader sense that, you know, instead of having national conversations, national debates, we're getting sort of invisible micro-targeting on Facebook. Um, that's, you know, you, you yourself were accused, you know, I, I think the, the mail wrote that you, uh, you, you a pollster who wouldn't sneeze without fo- consulting a focus group and so, you know, said that you had this kind of malign influence over David Cameron because you were testing everything and, you know, would only act if the, if the poll said it was a good yeah, idea. I know, I know, I, I... I think that's, that is a misrepresentation. I mean, I've always been in the view that any politician who, who decides what to say and what to believe and what policies to pursue by reference to focus group is going to end in disaster um, because, because voters, as we were discussing earlier, tend to be so uninterested in politics and to follow it only in the very broadest big picture. If you sit down in the focus group of voters and you, and you probe on particular issues... You, you will generally find a massive cognitive dissonance and that people, people will believe lots of contradictory things at the same time and also won't hesitate to completely change their mind about something on a dime. So a politician who sort of uses that and, and, and sets a position based on, on, on that would, would, it just wouldn't work. And I'm not sure that any politician um, ever has done that. Um, what I think is vital for politicians is to, is to get a constant sense of how the, the voters are seeing the country, are feeling about the country, are feeling about the government, are feeling about the, the changing sort of balance of issues that, that concern people. Um, because if if that's changing, or if you know if we're pursuing a particular policy, but which to our ear sounds like it's coming across clearly, but to their ear isn't coming across at all, or they're hearing things in the way we're describing it, which are, are making them feel it's wrong. I think we we need to know that, and and often the insights are uh, it's about. How do we communicate more clearly what we're trying to say um, than it is about let's use research to tell us what, what to do? And also, for example, from your time in Downing Street, there were occasions like the NHS reforms where you were just like, this just is, this has just gone too far and, you know, and there isn't genuine... Well, I mean, I, I, I went to work for, in number 10, for, I saw it in March 2011, and 
we'd already passed the sort of point of no return in pursuing the, those reforms. What the research said is that is that it, it was being communicated catastrophically that almost nobody understood why we were reforming the NHS, particularly since we'd said that we wouldn't. Um, almost nobody understood what the reforms were meant to achieve. They were very complicated, and therefore we were in a world where, on the one hand, every you know, all the doctors and the nurses and all the medical organisations, the Royal Colleges, and everybody that people trust on the NHS said, this is terrible. And there's the Conservative Party, which struggles to earn people's trust on that issue, saying, no, no, trust us, it's great. And that just wasn't going to end well. So what um, I did when I got there was, um, and, and with Craig Oliver, was to say, we need to try to reset the debate... So we paused the, the legislative process in order to try to build some alliances within the NHS among professionals, you know, people who were frankly trusted more than we were on the subject, and, in, 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 and to try to uh, reset the terms of the debate so that we could get across more clearly an argument about why we were doing what we were doing that would actually resonate with people and make sense. Um, but then, but then you've got something like gay marriage, where you're effectively. You know, your, your your research presumably shows that the country is just about ready for this, but you're really saying this is the right thing to do, and I think we can sort of get away with doing it, as opposed to the focus groups say people are demanding it. You know, um, that's a case of, of of belief leading. Yeah, but I th- but I, th- I think that's right. I think I think the question if if people want, people want to be led by politicians, they want politicians with convictions. I think research can help you sort of order the. The, your, your priorities they can help in the way that you talk about these things there certainly was there was no sort of spontaneous clamor that the country wants action on this it was certainly clear that from the research that if when forced to think about it in a poll or a focus group on balance there was a majority that thought yeah that's fine um but quite a lot of t- hardcore tory voters a lot of tory voters very resistant to it i didn't i didn't i approached it from a different angle which was actually that david cameron long before i had anything to do with David Cameron had publicly committed himself to it he personally believed in it very strongly um, because he he believes very strongly in marriage and he, he thinks in, in the nicest possible way that it would be lovely if everybody could be married as happily as he is so and he'd already said that very clearly and in, 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 in when he first became leader said that what he believed he supported marriage whether it between, between a woman and a woman or a man and a woman or a man and a man and, and he managed to get a, a ripple of applause out of a Tory conference for saying that and the fact was, it was in, it was already in the pipeline. So the question was, do we let Tory members of the government who oppose equal marriage block it off in committee, um, which would have become an, a, a round within the coalition in which the, the Dems would have been championing it and the Tories would have been seen to be blocking it? Or does David Cameron, who's already told everybody that this is something he believes in, does he take ownership of it and make sure it happens? Um, and my my view was that he should do the latter. He believed it was the right thing to do. I, as, as it happened, so do I. But um, it was on the agenda, so it wasn't it wasn't a it was, you know it wasn't a question of of asserting it. And certainly, you know, none of us thought sort of thought this was a high priority for the country. It's just something that could quite easily be done. Um, I did think and do think that, particularly when you've got a Conservative government having to take some very difficult and painful decisions to deal with a deficit. Um, Leavening people's perception of the party's values by doing some some more progressive things is important and necessary, so that there's a, a more balanced picture of the party and its values, mm-hmm. because otherwise the stereotype too too readily drops back into place. Before 2010, one of the things we did was um, in, in polling was we frequently asked people um, in polls the unprompted question, 
what would be your biggest fear if the Conservatives win and David Cameron to be Prime Minister? And invariably the biggest fear, particularly in the context of the economic debate at the time, was they'll cut much too deeply and in particular they'll cut the NHS. So taking the necessary difficult decisions that had to be taken on the economy in 2010 to 2015 um, could easily have, have reversed the sort of modernisation gain in terms of perception of the party's value. So I, I, th- I think that the equal marriage helped in that sense. But it is astonishing, you know, the, the, the Tory party got very, very feverish about it. We had all these reports of, of from you know, cabinet ministers of, of their local activists resigning and so forth, um, and lots of people predicting that it would cost us the general election. And as far as I could see it here, when we got to the general election two years later, it had already ceased to be an issue. I don't think anybody voted differently. Well, I don't think anybody voted against the Conservative Party in 2015 uh, in any numbers because of equal marriage. And actually, I think one of the great things about, about Britain and one of the great things about the Conservative Party is how quickly it, it adapts. And actually, I think people have resettled about around that new status quo very easily because actually it turned out it didn't diminish the meaning of marriage for heterosexual couples. And, and it's, it's, it's a happy thing. Moving from happy things and happy couples to slightly harder-edged politics, uh, in the Scottish referendum, what's now called Project Fear, derived from your advice that love bombing Scotland, that talking about common bonds and these sort of emotional connections wouldn't work, and the, the focus had to be on independence being irreversible, the economic consequences, that really kind of hard-edged campaign. It, I mean, do you think that was the right judgment to make? Well, what the research said to us, which I think everybody found very sobering, was that the uh, there was if you think Scott Cotton sort of split into, into three blocks, and there were a group of people who were going to vote for independence, come what may. There were a group of people who were going to vote for the, to stay in the union, come what may. But the people in the in the middle, the wavering, the floating voters, as it were, of that referendum. When you looked at their attitudes, what we found was that attitudinally they were much, much, much closer to the people who were definitely going to vote for independence. They felt that Scottish rather than English. They felt Scottish rather than English. They, they not sorry, British. British. Obviously, they, they, they felt they felt very little affinity with the the union. They felt very little affinity with people like them in the rest of the UK. They didn't see, feel there were any particular advantages to Scotland from being in the United Kingdom. That, you know, their hearts were all, were already a long way to independence. So, the, I mean, the, the, the judgment call that the campaign had to make was: in the time we have available, with the resources we have available, is it realistic for us to to, to completely turn around those particular swing voters' um, feelings about Scotland's relationship with with England and the rest of the of the UK? And the decision we came to was that that was not realistic. That actually those those views had, had been developing over a long period of time. Um, I think the lesson here actually is that the you know, when when the Conservative Party um, opposed, as it did for a long time, the creation of a Scottish Parliament, its central argument was the Scottish Parliament is a slippery slope towards the independence, and I think that was true. That did unleash that that um, impetus. But nobody really did anything about it. We sort of we'd observed it. Then after the Scottish Parliament was set up, I think all, all of the, all of us who believe in, in the United Kingdom should have been much more actively engaged in campaigning, really continuing to make the case why 
devolved powers is one thing, but that Scotland still benefits from being in the, U- in the UK, and we and that didn't happen. So by the time we get to kind of twenty thirteen, in the run up to the referendum, it was very hard realistically to see how you could recreate in those people this sense of belonging, this sense of value of being part of something bigger, of the affinity with the rest of the UK. And there's an exact parallel here with the EU referendum, where in both cases, at the start of the, po- the start of the campaign, it looks like it's going to be an easy win for the for the status quo. On the on you know on the surface level of the, po- of the polling, I don't think that's quite. I, mean, I think I mean Scotland. I think Scotland more so than the, the EU, but I, I, I think it's wrong to think that there was there was complacency in um, in Scotland because because like I said, when, when you actually looked at the attitudes, it was really challenging in the sense that they were say you know they, they almost had one foot out of the door already, and what we're going to have to do you know people they they really liked the idea of independence and how they thought independence would make Scotland but yes, a no, so, country. But that's the parallel I'm making. That sorry, um, that in the with the EU. Effectively, they really liked the idea of Britain being independent again, and yes. there had been decades in which no one, yes. no one had made any yes. sing, any arguments in favour of the EU. Yes. Everyone had blamed Brussels for everything. In your focus groups, you find that when you ask people to say nice things about the EU, you know, tumbleweed rolls across the table, yes. and someone That's eventually correct. says, "Oh, trade, maybe." Yes. Or, yes. yes. So, you know, so, the, yes. so, you, yes. so your argument then again yes. would be that there was no, yeah. there, there were, you, know, you can't start building a positive, optimistic patriotic case for the EU to quote Will Straw in the last sort of weeks and months before that, the that, referendum that is my that is my view of what the research told us um, you know I, I wasn't in charge of that campaign I was I believe strongly in its argument and I was working for it but you know, I didn't take that decision but that was strongly my view uh, and I think that if we'd spent a year and a half running a campaign about the, the, the benefits of the UK and a pro a pro-union campaign I think we may well have lost that referendum um, because it wouldn't have it wouldn't have been harmful, but it wouldn't have landed. And, and it, it, my view is that in essence, what we were trying to do was to get people to vote against something that they were actually in their hearts in favour of. And were you, were you surprised by that, what then happened in Scotland after the vote? I mean, for me, it felt like when David Cameron stood up and said, "Oh, and now we need to get a fair deal for the rest of the UK too." That was the moment at which it kind of just went. It sort of crystallised a sort of a phase change, if you will. Yeah, I, mean, I think I think that was that was a mistake, certainly tonally, and it was probably a mistake substantively as well. Um, Scotland needed to be sort of reassured and assured and welcomed back in open arms, and, and and get a very positive positive reaction to its decision. Um, and I certainly think the, the the way that that sounded in Scotland was 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 very jarring. On the EU, one of the criticisms made of you is... Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. 
absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Is that you, is it basically you got the numbers wrong? That, um, I mean, Tim Shipman in his book says, and I quote, the, the main reason why Stronger In stuck with a failing strategy was Andrew Cooper's polling. Um, on the final day of the poll, Populous, which yeah. you're part of, has has remained 10 points yeah. ahead. And in fact, on the, in the 2015 UK election, um, you give Cameron a 0.5% chance of, um, you know, of, of securing an outright majority, which then actually happens. Yeah. I mean, is there, <laughs> I suppose, what good is a pollster if, if, the, if the polls are not, yeah. are not working? Uh, no, I, 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 I take that entirely on the chin. I mean, let's take that in order, uh, in, in chronological. So, I'm 2015, um, what we tried to do, because if you think about it, in a, in a country where actually who, who governs the country and, and, and by what, you know, what, what authority is about how many MPs you end up with, not what your share of the vote is, and yet what the, the, the common currency through the campaign is what percentage of supporters each party have. So what we tried to do in 2015 was to develop a model which transposed poll numbers into not only seats in Parliament, but probabilities of particular governmental outcomes. And, and if the poll numbers had been right, um, we would have been right that, that, that with the, the numbers that we were looking at, uh, that there was a very, very, very slender chance, probability, of, of there being, an, being a Conservative government with a majority. Um, if you put the correct um, election figures into, into that prediction model that produces the right numbers. Um, so the problem wasn't the. I know. I know that some some people are particularly galled by that, and I think it, it sort of saw it as, as sort of hubristic, spurious specificity. If if you, as it were, sort of follow the the the, the Watergate deep throat principle of following the money, what co- commentators should have noted was that you, in, in past elections you knew there was an election going on because everywhere you went there were huge billboards everywhere. Um, and there were virtually none in, in, in 2015. So I posed the question, they're not spending all their money on posters, what are they spending it on? And that while Ed Miliband boasted about his, his millions of conversations, I said what the Conservatives are doing is silently and crucially invisibly targeting the, the key voters who matter with the key messages, that's where their money is going. And it may well be that, the, that at the end of all of this, we find that actually that makes the difference and that means that they win. And I also said, and the reason why that may be the case is because ultimately um, the country prefers the Conservatives on the economy and strongly prefers David Cameron to Ed, to Ed Miliband. And those in, in, in an in a mm. election that nobody feels very enthused about may be the thing that, de- that defines it. So I, I, in common with almost everybody else, I mi- misread and underestimated the, the chance of the Conservatives winning outright because the polls were wrong. And, wh- and why were the polls wrong? The polls were wrong because um, there's two, two big problems. Firstly, um, there's, a, there's a fundamental underlying question, the challenge of, of the representativeness of samples. Um, so 
when I first started doing opinion polling, the gold standard was you did it on the phone. Um, the response rate was about one in five. So to, so to get a 1,000 sample, you talked about 5,000 people. You could easily do that over the course of a weekend, and that's what we used to do when we did polling for the Times. Response rates on the phone have collapsed. So they're now more like one in 20 or one in 25. Um, you know, I'm sure that you don't know very many people who use a landline, and I'm sure you don't know, you know even fewer people who, who readily answer calls from people they don't know. Anymore. I think the only reason people have landlines anymore is so that they can, they can get broadband. Yeah. So, um, so you can no longer do, or you can't. It's become much, much harder and much more expensive to do a traditional uh, random digit dial probability sample on the phone. Um, and and that and and the economics of the industry have driven people more and more to online panel polling. Um, but the problem with online panels is they, they don't capture the full spectrum of the demographics of the country. Um, and in particular, they, they, they have not enough people on the internet panels to be polled who are uh, time-poor, professional, middle-class people. Or elderly people who don't really use the internet. Or, I mean, they have some of those, but that's, that, that's another, another issue with, with polling. Because if, if you've, got, you've got a small number of... 75-year-old people in your online panel, what you do with that as a policy in order to make them representative within the overall sample is you have to upweight them. And therefore what you're doing is assuming that the 75-year-old person who is on your internet panel is attitudinally similar to one who isn't, which is clearly highly unlikely to be true. And in as much as they therefore may be atypical of their age range, what you're doing is actually magnifying the error because you're having to upweight them. So it's the it's the John Curtis point that, this, that it wasn't shy Tories; it was busy Tories. Yes, and so and that's that's that problem one is is representing the Problem two is, which is a constant challenge for pollsters, is estimating who is going to vote. In general terms, people massively overestimate their own probability of voting and are very poor at, at estimating their likelihood to vote. So if we're starting off with a sample of two thousand people, almost all of whom say, "Yeah, yeah I'm definitely going to vote," especially the younger ones. Especially the younger ones. But we know we know only probably only 70, 65 to 70% of them will actually vote. Which 65 to 70% will actually vote makes a vast difference when party shares are relatively close together. Um, and the, 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 the tendency within the party industry has been to move towards what they call propensity models, which is basically looking at demographic patterns of past elections and applying a, a, a Turnout propensity to people based on their demographics rather than on what how likely they say they are to vote, but that obviously is built on the premise that the demographics of, of a voting electorate will be pretty similar from one one election to the next, and and that wasn't right. And and was this the problem with the uh, Brexit campaign? Because all of a sudden you're going from a campaign in which it, you know you know what the electorate looks like, you know how people have behaved in the past, to one where there's effectively yeah. no, no precedent. Yes, and I mean. You know, general elections they, they are cluttered with issues and people having to work lots of different, sometimes competing factors about parties. Referendums declutter and you have a simple kind of binary question and it draws out a different electorate. Now, in, in, in the EU referendum, um, I mean, you know, we, we in common with most other pollsters have done a lot of work post-2015, very frankly, trying to address the problems that we had um, and trying to come up with, with methodologies which would um, cope with those issues. And that's where we're going into the EU referendum. Now, in the EU referendum, in turnout terms, we expected the turnout to rise um, from the general election level as it did. Um, and we expected that there would be an increased turnout among, um, among poorer, less well-educated, blue-collar workers who 
very feel very strongly about the EU. Um, but we also expected there to be an increase in turnout among 18 to 30 year olds who felt strongly about the EU. And though we assumed that the former group would be more numerous, because the ratio among that group on the EU was something like 60-40 for Brexit, whereas the ratio among the younger people was more like 80-20 for Remain, that it would roughly sum out, and, and, and that therefore that in higher turnout, in, in, in yeah. terms of the referendum debate, it would be roughly a wash. And, and instead you get to this turnout threshold, which I think Leave say they knew about, yeah. but which is where it gets to sort of around 70% or over. Yeah. Suddenly you get all these people voting who've never voted yes. before, yes. pouring out of the council estates. And, 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 and there were, you know, there, there was a... You know, and with hindsight, that you know that, that that is where the polls went wrong. But I mean, there was evidence to sort of back up our thesis when we looked at the demographic profile of the people who applied to go onto the electoral register in order to vote. It was very heavily skewed younger people. The incidence of eighteen to thirty fours among those new registrants was more than twice what it is in the population. So that gave us reassurance that those people, young people, were really were actually going to do what they say they're going to do. And actually, what happened is a lot of young people joined the register and then didn't vote, and that the, the, the 2.8 million people who voted in the referendum who hadn't voted in the, in the general election uh, the year earlier were very disproportionately leave-voting people. I mean, do you, do you think it could have been uh, that there was a case for going harder at Boris and Gove and sort of tying them to Farage and really kind of, you know, basically sacrificing Tory unity for the sake of referendum victory. So, so I mean, there's two arguments on that. One, which I think is yours, is that the more people saw this on blue and blue as blue on blue, the more they just washed their hands of the whole thing. But there's another argument, which is that you know you needed Labour voters to vote. And yeah, um, no, I, I I agree. I mean, the Labour camp- the campaign was a huge problem, and and you know, I mean, I know that the, the Labour colleagues in that camp in the, in the the Remain campaign found Corbyn's office actively obstructive, not just sort of passively unhelpful. Um, I mean, that, that, there was a proper debate about about that. I mean, you know, David Cameron and George Osborne were strongly opposed to blue on blue. My concern was that because of the way that the campaigns reported, if you know, if David Cameron had attacked Boris Johnson. That, that what would have come through in the news, what dom- dominated the news, would have been the blue on blue and the sort of pantomime within the Tory party rather than the, the substantive argument. So I'm, I don't know. What, what I did advocate was that we, which I guess probably would have taken us into that territory, is we were increasingly concerned by the potency of £350 million for the NHS, which people were spontaneously quoting back in focus groups in a world where most ordinary people don't know any statistics about anything. Um, and I did argue that, that actually it, may be, it was time to just take that head on and, and you know, try to establish in people's minds that actually that figure isn't true. And if that's not true, what else that they're telling you isn't true either? Well, there was that extraordinary press conference where Cameron stands in Downing Street and basically just accuses everyone of lying. It's a sort of, you know, just right clearly a man at the end of his tether yeah, right who the hasn't found a, a way of... Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I said um, in Craig Oliver's book, he, he quotes me as saying that, that you know, uh, uh, a simple lie beat a complex truth. And I mean, that I think is how a lot of us felt in, in, in the campaign. And I think you know, there's a feeling that £350 million, was, which they, they stuck to with admirable strategic discipline, um, but was very cynical. I mean, do you think, winding the clock back, you, you, was there a way for you to have won that campaign? 
Um, I mean, obviously, I mean, it was only it was fifty two forty eight. So obviously, yeah. obviously there was, but yes, obviously but, there was. But, but, but to to have won it by the amount that populists thought you were going to win it by. Well, um, can I? I, I I'd sure. like to address that point directly, if I may, sure. um, because I mean, it's, it's it's absolutely true that on 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 referendum day, populists published a, a referendum poll that had a ten percent win for Remain, um, and that was the, that was the first po- po- uh, poll published since the two thousand five election. Um, and probably the last um, that was done on a completely different methodology from the from the research we were doing for the campaign and uh, you know we, we, we take responsibility for the fact that we published a poll based cr- crucially wrong because of the turnout assumptions were wrong but it is completely wrong to, to interpret what the campaign was seeing through that poll. So this was this was a populist poll, not an Andrew Cooper poll, and the Andrew Cooper polls were going to... No, I mean, the, the, the campaign research was done by populists as well, but using a completely different methodology. We were doing a daily tracking poll for the last five weeks of the campaign um, on a different methodology with, with different weighting assumptions. Um, but the point, of the, uh, and the point of the of the tracking research in the campaign isn't so much to try to replicate each day what we think would have definitely happen if the referendum was, was today is more to make sure we've, we feel we've got an accurate pulse mm. on the movements and the fluctuations and the trajectory. And what that told us was that um, we could see that beneath the surface we were losing ground on the core arguments and the economic perceptions were shifting from our side of the argument to theirs. But we also could see that it was very, very close. Um, I mean, you said earlier that... You know, Bearing Scotland and the EE referendums, that you know, we, we start off with a big lead. Actually, when we, the first poll we did back in April 2015, um, the, the unmodelled numbers was 53.47 to remain. And once we, we, we put in some different assumptions on turnout, you could quite easily see, see how you, when we ended up in that presentation on having shown how Leave could win 51.49. So it, it was very close. And again, we knew that there was a softness within it because there were a lot of people who were at that moment saying, yes, I'll probably vote to remain, but who also had a strong antipathy to the EU and whose hearts quite strongly said, I think we should leave. And that meant that, that we were vulnerable. And though we thought we'd win, um, I think we were very alive to the possibility that we could lose. And the campaigns, um, the, the daily tracking, we had leave and remain basically well, you know, within, within, well, within the margin of 50-50 for about the last three weeks. Um, there was a blip, which I think was also seen in the public polling. I don't know if it was in the Leaves polling um, when the awful murder of Joe Cox. There was a there was a blip up for Remain, um, but that was starting to come out of come out of the system again on the, the, so, the so, Tuesday. So, so where did the sixty forty come from, and and then why 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 publish it? What sixty forty? So not sixty forty. So the the ten point. Uh, well, it, that was that was a. So, you know, You've got, we've got a small team of people working with the Remain campaign during the Remain's polling. You've got the broader picture of whether populists will, um, will re-enter the, 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 the game of public polling and um, did a standalone poll on the, the Tuesday and the Wednesday before. Um, and, you know, the, the numbers are the numbers. We, 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 we mm. crunch the numbers, we apply the, the, the turnout adjustment, which we think is is likely and that's what we ended up with it was you know and it was it wasn't it wasn't miles worse than others there were several that were 54 46 for remain but it clearly it was wrong but it was i mean that's yeah 
So going back to the other question, I mean, what what would would or could or should have you have done differently in in the campaign? Well, I think I think had had the renegotiations perhaps been approached and and pitched in a different way, we might have had more to work with. Um, I think that with hindsight, we sh- we we should have tried to make the economic argument in a different way. But you know that that it isn't easy. I mean, you know, three hundred and fifty million pounds. That specific figure is is is, in my view, a cynical sort of misrepresentation of a broad fact. But there is a broad fact that it costs us hundreds of millions of pounds a week. Um, there was no simple equivalent fact that captured what is the economic benefit that we assert of us being in the EU. There are lots of sort of estimates, and the CBI had a figure of three thousand pounds a year for a typical family. But people would say, well, I've never had three thousand pounds check from the EU. Um, so it was quite hard to sort of bring to life, and, and in the end, the, the, the obvious ways to bring it to life were, were either through through the, the, the observations and, and uh, of, of experts, of whom it turned out we were all, we were all sick and tired. Um, but to, you know, but to try to use the Bank of England, the IMF, the World Bank, you know, people, respected institutions, to say that there really is an economic risk, uh, or specific people. And then the other option was to try to, to produce treasury numbers that tried to capture for people its view of the scale of the, of the risk. Um, and so you had the... The 4,300. 4, but, uh, I mean, the problem with that was it just it didn't feel, feel remotely credible to people. It felt it sounded really, really weirdly high to a person on, a, on, a, on an average income. Again, people said, well, I've never had that from the... What are they talking about? Um, we, we didn't succeed in kind of crystallising in a credible way for people why that would flow because they could easily default back to the theory but the negotiations are going to be okay they want to trade with us and they need us more than we need them so why would that happen it was also weirdly specific in a world where actually our, our bigger picture argument was the reason it's risky is because it's a leap into the unknown well if it's unknown how can you know that it's £4,300 um, and then, in a sense, we doubled down on that on that mistake with the, with the, the prospect of the emergency budget, and it, it sounded so it sounded sort of too big, and therefore sounded like scaremongering. Uh, and made and, and rather than building the credibility of our economic argument, I think it undermined it. Um, but you know, so in, in an ideal world, one would have found a way to, in a relatable way, talk to people about the economic risk to them and their families and the things that matter to them. But actually, in practice, that is that is, that is hard, and I've got you know I frequently talk to people who say you know looking back on it now and post Trump and looking at the underlying demographics of it, maybe Britain was always going to vote to leave and maybe we were never going to win, and I agree with you in in, in any race which ends up fifty two forty eight that by definition means you could have won, but you know if if the young people who signed up the register to vote had voted, we would have won so. And I mean, finally, um, you talked you talked earlier about the sort of shifting nature of politics, sort of suddenly post Brexit, and, and what we're seeing in this election. I mean, what, if from your position, given given that you're doing all this research and you're sort of seeing all this data, what would you say are the sort of defining nature of how British politics is changing? You know, what are the new tribes or groups or attitudes that politicians will have to uh, come to terms with in the next few years? I mean, the the, the big change I think over the last few years has been been the, the growing potency of identity uh, as, a, as a political driver and um, the growing importance of of diversity 
and I tend I tend to agree with the way that, that Tony Blair frames it, which is I mean it's a, it's an oversimplification, but he said you know the, the political divide is increasingly not left or right on economic terms; it's actually open versus closed. And I think that or the anywhere versus somewhere argument. Yes. and I I think that history will look back on this period from sort of 1990 to 2040 as the reaction to globalisation and the the weighing up of whether globalisation is worth it, whether the price of it is too high for for particularly for less well-educated, less well-off people in developed economies. I think that liberal metropolitan highly educated people with high incomes approve of globalisation for two reasons partly because they've benefited from it and partly because it has transformed the lives of billions of people who are living in starvation but if, I think that you know, so in effect what we're saying is globalisation has enabled a, a wealth transfer from the developed economies to the developing ones and the people who've paid the economic cost of that aren't people like me they're not the the Remain voting um, metropolitan establishment, there are working working class people um, you know, who've seen their jobs go through globalization, who've seen their living standards stagnate or fall as a result of it, and who felt voiceless, who felt that, that their, their feelings weren't understood or, or listened to or respected, who for a long time had heard politicians try to make them feel as if the politicians understood their point and promising to do things about it, and then nothing ever seemed to change. Um, and in the end, voting for Brexit, like voting for Trump, felt like a like a very direct and straightforward way to to try to deal with those issues. But there's an irony here, isn't there, that you sort of spent your career trying to effectively drag the Tory Party towards those Remain voting metropolitans because yeah. that that was yeah. what you, what you needed to do to win elections. And now, almost accidentally, it's found itself in this position where it's the the voice and spokesman and sort of standard bearer for the people who've been left behind. Yes, and, I, and I, I, th- I think it needs to be very careful about that. I think um, at the moment we're in, in a fortunate position where there isn't any credible alternative, and the Conservative Party can take with it a lot of a lot of um, remain supporting people who who would favour a much more open rather than closed view of the world. But ultimately, you can't holding both sides of that together is going to be very difficult. I also think there's there's a question underlying question here, which is. Do we really believe that leaving the EU and, let us say, if we do, taking back control of our borders and reducing immigration, do we really believe that is actually going to improve materially the lives and opportunities and and prospects and prosperity of poor, low-skill, working-class people in in economically disconnected parts of Britain? And I think that is clearly no. If you look at Clacton... Which obviously was the one UKIP seat had one of the biggest majorities for for Brexit, um, which is ninety nine percent white, has no EU migration to speak of whatsoever. Is Clacton going to going to find its its trajectory turned and suddenly see more more positive future for itself because of Brexit? No. But, I mean, you can make the argument that as David Goodhart does, that British work, you know, British firms have preferred to recruit foreign labour rather than training up British labour, so that there's an indirect effect of, of immigration as well as the whole pressure on public services uh, point. I, I, that may that may be true to an extent. I mean, certainly, that's certainly not what what businesses and industries say is their experience with the British labour market. 
Um, but I, I think if our reaction to that is to basically shut our doors, um, I think that's a pretty dispiriting response from us as a country. And when, I, when, I, when I worked for David Cameron, one of the, one of the one of the moments that I was most satisfied by um, is the 2012 party conference speech in which he set out the argument that that the, the, the bigger context for having to fix the deficit is that we're in a global race. William Hague's race, I believe. William, it was William's, yeah, well, there was a meeting in the cabinet room and he went around the table and it was William's mm. frame. But it, but it, and it's a slightly clunky phrase, but, you know, and obviously what it's talking about is globalisation. But what we found when we researched it is... Even people who find it extremely challenging and unwelcome mostly accepted that it was true. So that actually, you know, we, we've opened up the global economy and, and in the era of the internet, you can't really close it again, even if you wanted to, however challenging the consequences. And the idea that, you, that, that by, by a few small, simple steps or by shutting our doors... We can insulate ourselves from 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 the pressures and tides of a global economy. It just isn't true. And so, you know, in the Cameron speech, he said, "So, if in a global race, what we have to do is make sure that we're we're competitive and highly skilled and able to compete and thrive and lead in a global race, not pretend that we don't have to engage with it." Brexit doesn't actually make any of those things go away. Um, that, you know, and that, in policy terms, that certainly means that that. Education and training and retraining and upskilling become incredibly important. Um, if you look at the, the demographics of the people who who were the core of the, of the of the vote to leave the EU, they're by and large the same people who are going to be facing the particular pressure of job losses through automation and robotics and AI. So there's a sort of second wave coming there, and it's going to make the, the need to, to reskill and upskill even more urgent. So we need to build build a country that works for everyone, or else. Yes, I think that's right, and I think we, you know, we need to connect places. I think it's not a coincidence that many of the the, the most strongly Brexit supporting places are um, seaside towns, literally at the periphery on the, at the edge of our of our society, that are physically, literally, very disconnected from where the kind of engines and, and economic hubs are of a modern globalised economy. Um, I was looking the other day. If you look, if you compare um, Brighton and Margate two southern seaside towns, both about 70 miles from London. One voted massively for Remain, one voted massively for Leave. And you look at the differences between them. You know, Brighton is a young place, much younger than the, the, the population as a whole. It's very diverse. It's better educated and better off. I think, very significantly, it's, it's less than an hour from London by train for, 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 for 90 quid a week. Margate, which is older, poorer, less healthy, less well-educated, and is a, you know, there's no proper direct reach, and it's getting on for two hours, and it costs getting on for 200 quid a week. I don't think that's a coincidence. So, you know, a response to the pressures of globalisation on people who felt drawn to the, the apparent simplicity of Brexit is, for example, let's invest in the high-speed rail links connecting Margate to London, and you turn it into a London commuter town, and suddenly in a world where we need to build hundreds of thousands of houses, if we build some of them in Margate, what we're going to get is young families wanting to live in that area and needing to live in that area and suddenly you start rejuvenating those places and, and bringing a bit of economic vitality and, and you know, literally reconnecting them to, to the, the motors of, our, of a modern economy which, which in, in the UK is, is a lot of that is about the big cities and that's where the networks and the opportunities are. 
So effectively trying to turn leave voters into into Remainers or kind of so, social, socially speaking. Well, I mean, my, my, my personal view is that I don't believe that, 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 that the, the, the leave proposition was was correct in that it isn't actually the art going to solve the problems that those people hoped that it would. And so our challenge is not to sort of have any, we should only have respect for the life experiences which drew people to that conclusion. But if it's true that Brexit isn't actually going to be the answer, we need to focus really hard on what is the answer then. And I certainly think that if we are headed for a world in which it's an open versus closed debate, people who are, as it were, on the open side of that argument need to have a much more um, positive and coherent response to the very real feelings and experiences of people who, who were drawn to the closed argument. Because I don't think that the closed argument is is tenable. I don't think it's right. And it's certainly not where I personally want to be in political terms. Lord Cooper, thank you very much. And if you enjoyed this, please uh, subscribe on iTunes or any other podcast service or review and rate and let us know what you think. Thank you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.